you're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast, hosted by Zach Bechtold and Matt Franks. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and check us out online at beardedtheologians.com. So you're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast, hosted by Matt Franks. And Zach Bechtold. So this week on the on the podcast, we... Uh, reached out to Shane Claiborne, uh, who does uh, some great things for the General Board of Church and Society and, and has spoken at many of their com- uh, conversations in regards to uh, all sorts of things that Shane's doing. And uh, Shane said yes to come on the show. And so we figured um, one of the great ways to end Holy Week would be to air the conversation that we had with Shane um, for uh, Holy Week. And so this week is Holy Week, and we're going to introduce, the, um, you know, you're going to get a chance to listen to the conversation that we had with Shane. And so we want to encourage you to uh, continue listening and, and know you're not hearing a second podcast after this one starts. <laughs> um, this is just us and the interview that we had with Shane. And we felt like it was a great interview in regards to our social principles that we've been talking about the last few weeks uh, to, to put this in at this time in Holy Week. And, um, and so we want to encourage you to keep listening. And so just keep it going. You're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast hosted by Matt Franks and Zach Bechtold. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have, I was going to say actor, you're not an actor, (laughs) you're an activist (laughs) and writer and and all around just a wonderful human being. Uh, Shane Claiborne's with us this morning. Shane, thanks man for for being with us and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Well, man, yeah, I grew up down South and, uh, uh, fell in love with Jesus and I came up north to go to college and fell in love with my neighborhood here, you know, and I've been, um, living on this block for 20 years, trying to build a a little community that's inspired by, uh, the early church in the book of Acts, where it said they shared everything they had. They did their lives together. They, you know, worshiped in each other's homes and sort of lived the gospel out of dinner tables and living rooms. But, and what, what we've been trying to do for the last 20 years and been great yeah wonderful um tell us a little bit about kind of that that journey of of coming to this neighborhood um in and just exploring what what that looks like maybe from what did this neighborhood look like in the beginning well so i went to college about a half hour outside of the city kind of formal city sort of in the suburbs and uh, so I first encountered Kensington, which is the neighborhood that I'm a part of. Uh, it's on the north side of Philly. It's, it's Philadelphia, but Philadelphia's got all these little neighborhoods that have different names, you know. And um, Kensington, um, interestingly enough, like it, it was the old like industrial boom, you know, like the, the factories were the magnet for people moving in here. We got old billboards that said where, Kensington, where everybody wants to live. And the old saying was, you could, uh, if you lost your job, you could walk a block and find another one, you know, before the end of the block. Um, and then, you know, those neighbor, th- those, those factories started to move out of the neighborhood. We've lost, uh, it's estimated a hundred thousand jobs or more. Um, so it's pretty economically devastated. We've got 700 abandoned factories, uh, like 30,000 abandoned houses. So we like to say, there's a lot of room for resurrection, you know, and, and mm. um, some people call our neighborhood, they call Kensington the Badlands, mm. but we always say that's exactly what they said about Nazareth, you know, so uh, <laughs> we know better than to say nothing good could come from there. Um, and we've found a, a lot of beautiful things here. You know, we've learned community here. Uh, I first encountered Kensington when I was in uh, college and a group of homeless mothers um, had gotten together and very courageously these moms said we we refuse to be invisible and we want people to see that homelessness among uh children and mothers and families is a really big deal in fact it was the fastest growing homeless population in the country um i think it still is um uh is women and children and so they moved into the one of those abandoned buildings but they were very strategic with the one they chose they moved into an abandoned catholic church building this beautiful old sanctuary um and uh that's what sparked everything for us you know they they um sadly the response of the archdiocese was to kick them out and uh, they gave them a 48-hour eviction notice, and that's where we mo- we mobilized students to come in 
uh, alongside them in solidarity and even to risk arrest, you know, for trespassing on church property. We felt like what the church was doing was not right. And um, the families hung a banner that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday uh, and ignore one on Monday? Mm. And uh, so it was, it was a powerful awakening for me too. I think I really uh, just kind of got my second baptism there, you know, and uh, really caught the fire for justice. That's so much of the, at the heart of the gospel. So Shane, you have, you have uh, several books uh, that are out there um, and you have one coming out, I guess. Um, so just, you know, talk to us about some of your books that you have or, you know, you know. Well, I start, I, I'm mostly a storyteller, you know, and I'm a, I'm a, um, some people, uh, are speakers that write and other people's are writers that speak. I do a little bit of both, but I think at the heart of most of my writing is stories, um, uh, stories that have sort of moved me. And, um, my first book, Irresistible Revolution, I wrote about, oh, geez, I think it's been like 12 years. Uh, I just had to do a re so we did like a 10 year anniversary edition where I went back and all the margins wrote uh, notes right. of what's different or, you know, how this story ends or whatever. And um, that was a lot of fun. Then I, you know, we wrote Jesus for president that digs a little deeper on the theological stuff. And what, what does it kind of look like to be this peculiar people of Jesus in the world we live in, especially as we posture ourselves politically in the world. What, you know, what's a, so that was good fun. And then I've done, you know, dozen other projects. I, I guess I did one uh, around militarism and violence called Jesus bombs and ice cream uh, with uh, Ben Cohen, from the, the Ben from Ben and Jerry's. And uh, <laughs> right. it's a good friend to have for a lot of reasons. We get some <laughs> serious ice cream around here, you know, for free. Uh, but, Anyway, yeah, and then, you know, my last book was um, uh, Executing Grace. That's about the death penalty, but it's also just as much about grace and mercy and um, restorative justice, forgiveness. Um, became, I became really troubled that uh, as, I, as you look at the death penalty, it's very clear that the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance in America if it weren't for the support of Christians. Um, and 85% of executions are happening in the Bible Belt, places like where, where I grew up, you know. Um, and so that, that, that disparity between those became really troubling for me because it raises some very fundamental questions about the Christian faith. Like, do we believe in redemption, <laughs> you know, right. and second chances? And uh, even, you know, aside from all the like uh, racial disparities and all of these other things, I think that are very problematic with our criminal justice system and the death penalty in general, but like the theological stuff is also important, you know? And so I kind of try to um, tell some stories in that book about folks that were wrongfully convicted and murder victims, family members that um, for many different reasons found better ways forward than the death penalty. And, um, you know, even executioners that, were haunted by what they did and became abolitionists, you know, uh, against the death penalty. So anyway, those things really moved me and they, they, um, they have a, a lot of kind of ripples, I think, uh, as far as it, it is about the death penalty, but it's, you know, kind of bigger than that. And then the, the book I'm working on right now and just finishing up is on gun violence. Uh, it's called Beating Guns. And, um, and, and even with that, guns are kind of a symptom of a bigger disease. So we look at sort of um, the culture of violence and the idolatry of our own, you know, um, guns and security and fear and all those things that are a part of this insanity that we find ourselves in right now, where we, we've got more guns than people mm -hmm. uh, in America. And it, it's just unprecedented anywhere else in the world. We also obviously have more gun deaths and more suicides than anywhere else in the world because of that. So um, I think that's a deeply spiritual issue. And, you know, so, so, Part of what I, I, I began to grieve is, is um, how narrowly we've defined uh, what it means to be pro-life. You know, so mm -hmm. growing up in the Bible Belt, I would have always said I was pro-life, but I was also pro-guns and pro-death penalty, you know, right. and found out, whoa, like, I think we, we when we say pro-life, we many of us just mean that we're against abortion, you know, or we're pro-birth. Um, but I, I saw, you know, there's a whole host of other issues. I think immigration. Um, and uh, the movement for black lives, uh, gun violence, the death penalty, militarism, the war, these are all like 
issues of life and death, and I, I want to stand consistently for life. You know, you a lot of the work that you do and, and that you've talked about here, whether it's in books or, or just where you're physically present, right, um, revolves around some political issues, revolves around um, a lot of things that we do in this country where, where people are really big on, well, the church doesn't have a place in, in that. The church doesn't get a voice over here in the political spectrum. The church doesn't get a voice here. And, and, and but we, we do, right? It, yeah. It's important that we speak up. And, and so in a culture where it seems every, that every year we go, it gets more and more present that, well, the church doesn't have a voice in this part of our, you know, in politics or in this part of our, our country. Um, how do we begin to switch that? How do we begin to stand up and say, oh no, if, if we're not talking about it, who is, right? Because uh, right. Jesus, Jesus, if anything, is, is very political, right? These gospels that we have are very political and, and should be, you know, if, if the church isn't standing up, who, who is? Yeah, well, I, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, growing up, I remember uh, a lot of preachers talking about life after death. And we're really good at promising people life after death, you know? Right. Um, uh, and if, if we're not careful, our faith becomes a ticket into heaven and a license to just ignore the suffering of the world that we live in. And, mm -hmm. and we're promising people well, but, you know, there's always heaven. And I, I found a lot of people that we were promising life after death were asking, is there life before death? You know, isn't the gospel relevant to immigration and dreamers isn't it doesn't it have anything to say to the world that we live in right now and, and you start to look at the things Jesus talked about and he's talking about exactly that he's talking about unjust judges and widows and day laborers and um, and oppressive kings and tyrants and you know self-righteous religious people uh, you know that didn't reach out and lift their neighbor out of the ditch when he was beat up you know and so all that stuff is it was just as much about this world as the next and so, you know, some folks say a lot of Christians are, are so heavenly minded that they're not much earthly good. Mm. There's some truth to that, that, that you know, um, we, we've uh, sort of kind of talked so much about the, the, the afterlife that we've forgotten the before life, you know. And, and, and I think that Jesus came not just to prepare us to die, but to teach us how to live. Um, and I still believe in the afterlife. It's going to be a beautiful thing. You know, I always say like, uh, we'll party like there's no tomorrow and there won't be, you know, but, but at the end of the day, Jesus came, the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about almost every time he opened his mouth um, was about bringing God's kingdom down, not just bringing us up when we die. It was about um, uh, God's reign or God's dream coming on earth on our streets and that the kingdom of God uh, is not just a hope for uh, after we die but it's something that we are to seek and pursue and to be um, instruments of bringing uh, that on earth while, while we live so uh, you know and, and sometimes I think we got to land the plane because our theology gets so high in the sky that what Jesus does is literally bring everything down to earth. You know, God comes to earth, born as a refugee, executed as a convicted criminal on a cross. And so it's this beautiful act of divine solidarity. That, that's what Jesus does for us. Um, shows us what God looks like um, with skin on, what love looks like, fleshed out. And that's what we're called to follow. And, and Jesus really had his feet on the ground. I mean, he lived in marginalized communities from the moment he was born until the moment he died on the cross. And, and that, that should help inform how we live. I think that we're not avoiding the suffering of the world, but as Christians, we're called into those streets where people get beat up, where injustice uh, continues to um, uh, prevail, you know, that that's moving, you know, sort of nearer to the suffering of the world. So I heard a preacher say, uh, never left heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I do too. Well, you know, and one of the things I've enjoyed about reading some of your books, I've read some of your books and have done actually the, the bombs and ice creams one. I I accidentally picked up at Mardell. It was on clearance. I was like, Oh, this looks really good. And so I didn't preview the content beforehand and I just showed it to a couple of people and oh, it got yeah. me, it got me in a little bit of trouble or a little bit of, you know, it stirred the pot a little bit. And, and I think that that's at least in, you know, from what I can see, that's definitely something that you do really well in a sense of you bring the light 
the the conversation of um, you know Zach said that you know one of the, the one of the struggles in, in a pastor is that we have to you know people will constantly say to us I mean it's usually a weekly conversation with me well you know the church doesn't need to be involved in the political and I'm like no 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 the, the church needs to be and that that is part of who uh, we are is that we are to engage those situations and those conversations and you know one of the things that we're dealing with in in Oklahoma right now our teachers are about to walk. Um, after, after Easter, they'll walk. And so what I've been talking about with my congregation is, you know, I don't care if you agree or disagree with the deal that we have to be a, a, we have the facility to do something for our community when those kids don't have a, a, a school to go to. Uh, we can be a facility that, that can feed those kids because we're, uh, so the county I'm in is like the second poorest county in Oklahoma, which puts us really high when you, you know, that puts us really high up there in regards to the United States. And so, you know, we have a lot of kids that will, you know, not have the safety of the school. Um, and, you know, parents can't afford childcare and that sort of thing. And so we can, that engaged in the community and that's one of the things I love about you and what you do you've definitely have engaged in the community in which you live and work in and and do just magnificent work and so would you mind sharing with us what you do in your community and what you've done yeah for sure first I think you make a really good point which is both of you have said this with the the idea of politics we've made that into kind of a dirty word but when you look at the core of that word um, it is about the people you know, uh, a metropolis is the mother city, you know, it's, it's uh, Minneapolis, you know, Indianapolis, all these polis is, is about the people in, a, in this world living and, and policies affect people. And so I've come to really think that we need to reclaim uh, politics as, a, as an extension of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. is that we are concerned about policies that affect our neighbor. Now, the dangerous thing, I think, with political engagement is putting all of our chips into a candidate or a party. So I don't think we should be partisan at all. Um, but to not care, to disengage um, it is, I think, um, really not, not living into the fullness of our responsibility to love our neighbor as ourself, um, especially when it comes to something like um, immigration. Um, and gun violence, like, like I, I'm convinced that we, and please, I, I grew up, you know, in Tennessee with guns everywhere, going hunting. I was lethal to squirrels, man. You know, like I, I, <laughs> I grew, but what we're talking about, like uh, in, in, in a, um, uh, right now, especially are, is semi-automatic uh, assault rifles. You know, the, these are guns that are, are only military style weapons that are designed to kill as many people as quickly as possible. And that's exactly what they're being used for over and over in mass shootings. Um, mm -hmm. And so does, do those have a place on the street? And, and no one's trying to say we don't, you know, we want to do away with the second amendment or something like that. I think we're talking about like a very particular things of like, how can we stand on the side of life? How can we try to make sure instead of 90 people dying every day, Maybe it's 50. I mean, we're never going to stop, you know, people from killing each other. You can do it with a crock pot. You can do it with, you know, a car driving into a crowd. I mean, this has actually been done, you know. Um, but um, but the, these these weapons, even, you know, in Philadelphia, like we, we've uh, had what I, I think is a sensible conversation around limiting the um, number of handguns. So to one per person per month. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Know, 12 a year. Like, right. Um, and even things like that, uh, you know, a narrow, very powerful group, you know, the gun enthusiasts within the NRA are blocking that. But here's what's important is like the NRA says they have 5 million people. That means like 90% of gun owners are not represented by the NRA and 98% of Americans. So I think like we've let a small group of folks hold our country hostage on a lot of issues, you know. And so to me, I always think of like, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And I can literally walk you through our neighborhood and tell you on every single corner, the stories of who's been shot and killed mm -hmm. on those corners. So this isn't just a debate. I mean, I, I think it really is to me about loving my neighbor. And that's the same with immigration as we, we talk about immigrations as if it was immigration as, as if it was just an issue to debate, but these are neighbors to be loved. They have names and faces and stories. And so that's where I think we've got to make policies personal, right? And see right. that, that uh, you know, Dr. Cornell West says, uh, uh, justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. Um, and in some ways, like um, 
our policies can reflect our hearts as well. And when we're forming policies out of fear rather than love, we can do really, really terrible things to people. And you don't have to look too far back in history to see that. And, you know, the, the promise of scripture is that perfect love casteth out fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but when fear is driving how we think about gun violence or immigration or whatever, like we, we can do really terribly unchristlike things and, and things that are very different from, I think, what love compels us to do. Um, so that, but, but, you know, you, you mentioned the neighborhood and for me, all that started by kind of landing my feet on the ground um, among people who, um, so, so immigration became um, something that is, uh, you know, really literally has names and faces that uh, of folks that, you know, fled El Salvador during the like civil war that I know, you know, and folks that have fled religious persecution places to come here as immigrants and, um, uh, gun violence is the same. So like a part of loving my neighbor as myself means that we, we do get involved in that. And when we pretend that we're not involved, even that is a statement. I think, you know, uh, when we don't talk about these things, um, that has political ramifications. So I don't think that you can be politically neutral. I think that you can be politically quiet, but that uh, also has, you know, I think ramifications and um, and, you know, frankly, you know, we say that we don't want to be political, but you have all kinds of folks that are talking about abortion or sexuality mm-hmm. uh, from the pulpit. Um, but it's uh, gun violence or militarism or other things that, you know, immigration that might be um, these kind of taboo things that we don't want to use the pulpit for. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, to, be, to, to follow Jesus, my gosh, means that we are going to get political. I mean, uh, you know, the. He, even the very uh, word that he used for the kingdom of God was totally politically charged. It was the same word for empire for the Roman Empire. You know? right. <laughs> and, and the early Christians were accused of insurrection. You know, they, they, when they were saying Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar is not. Right. And so right. The, the idea of Jesus being our king or savior was absolutely scandalous because um, uh, there was already a savior in the land and his name was Caesar. And mm-hmm. so when they when they had this different political imagination, um, it was it, it was obviously very uh, uh, controversial. And, you know, they were called enemies of the state. They were, um, you know, all, all, everybody was trying to figure that out. Now, I, so I think one thing that we can learn about the way that we politically engage is that we should be misfits. You know, we mm-hmm. should um, not find a very comfortable home in either of the parties because neither of them have a consistent ethic of life on every issue. And, and, and one of the things I love about the early church is they, they stood against violence consistently. Um, they spoke, uh, there's a great book my friend Ron Sider wrote called The Early Christians on Killing. And it goes through you know, how consistent, uh, and just really edited their own words, you know, but mm-hmm. what they said about abortion, what they said about the death penalty, what they said about the culture of violence and the gladiatorial gains, what they said about military service and war. And boy, you look back at these things, you're like, my goodness. I mean, one, they were radical in their commitment to life mm-hmm. and consistent in standing against death and very controversial because just like our time, um, their time was, was very much um, a, a culture of violence and death that were uh, overwhelmingly accepted by many people, even folks that would claim to be religious. Right. I'm going I'm to, we, we've talked a lot about the gun violence and how we, how we begin to really in any issue, begin to stand up and, and speak out. And, and I think telling people stories, right, putting names and faces and, um, you know, telling the stories of moms who have lost their children to violence. And uh, you shared a story uh, when I saw you in D.C. a few weeks ago um, talking about turning, you know, weapons into plowshares, right? And um, you, you had one of your kids in the neighborhood find a handgun, in an abandoned home. And, and you told us a story about, you know, a mom coming to, uh, to this and, and making a plowshare out of it. Would you mind unpacking that for us a little bit, telling us that story? Heck yeah. I've even got a visual for you, man. Sweet. I got that, <laughs> uh, that plow right here. Um, yeah. Mm. So this is, this is the, uh, 
the plat, the hand plow, you know, the, the garden tool that we made from the, the gun that you're talking about, it, it was found um, in an abandoned house, like you said, it was a friend of mine that found it. Um, and we, we um, uh, uh, got really inspired by the early Christians um, and, and the prophets uh, with this, this um, beautiful image that's from both Micah and Isaiah and the early Christians just preached on it, loved it. They clung to this idea that God's people will beat swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks, right? So that we will actually um, beat our weapons into farm tools. Uh, and that vision, the early Christians said, this is exactly our vocation in a world filled with death, is that we we believe in the empty tomb. We believe in this crucified and risen Christ, which, you know, when you looked at the cross 2,000 years ago, it would be like looking at a, a lynching noose or, so, or electric chair, that it was only a symbol of horrific torture and humiliation and the power, um, the paralyzing power of, of empire and the Roman empire, you know, like the worst of the worst were uh, ex executed by crucifixion. And, um, and yet Jesus endures that, exposes that violence, triumphs over it with love and an empty tomb and like, and uh, um, shows us what love looks like in the, in the midst of all of that, even saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, you know, but publicly kind of exposing all that violence. And I, I think that's got to reorient the way that we think about violence in the world. We're following the Prince of Peace. You know, the centerpiece of our faith is a, is a cross. Um, and um, so that, that, that image, you know, we got a forge and we started uh, uh, melting down guns. Um, I mean, one of the things that's true in our country is we now have more guns than people. Got over 300 million guns. And um, so we thought people must have extras, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Here's another interesting fact, like only a third of Americans own guns. So that means a few people have a whole lot of guns. Um, in fact, 3%, 3% of Americans own half the guns, 150 million guns. So that, that, that's, that's a lot of guns. So, so folks started donating them and we've been melting them down. My friends at Raw Tools, which is uh, raw is war flipped backwards, you know, raw tools. And there are blacksmiths and now we've got like, churches that have chop saws so people can bring their guns and we'll chop them down because you don't you can't just mail a gun so but once it's chopped you can mail it to us and we'll melt it down and um we've got these mobile blacksmithing units that we're starting to establish so we can start to transform some of these so i love it you know um but i think what you said is so important is that this is not just symbolic i mean it, it's it's literally a vision that the prophets saw that it's not the kings and presidents and politicians that are going to teach us the way of peace and nonviolence. Right. It's right. the people of God who begin to transform our violent hearts and our weapons. And then it ends by saying nation will not rise up against nation. People will study war no more. They will live without fear. You know, this beautiful apocalyptic vision of the lion and the lamb together of a peaceful world. But it begins when we refuse to kill. And I think that's really the starting point um, for us. Um, and, and we begin to stand for life and say, anytime a life is lost, we lose uh, a, 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 a part of God's image in the world because we're all bearers of that image. Um, and, um, and, and telling those stories becomes so important. So we've had, you know, mothers and dads take the, the hammer and we, uh, in, in, in a, a week, we will have a giant, public uh, melting down of a gun in Philly of an assault rifle and we're delivering it to our senator's office calling for a ban on these assault rifles and so yeah I think we've got to we've got to stir people's hearts and it's it's hard to argue with the power of like a uh, AR-15 getting melted down you just feel like man uh, this this makes for a better world you know right and one of the other things that we've done you know that some of this started around the season of Easter um, which we, we kind of fill this collision of life and death as we look at Jesus's violent death. And um, we had our Good Friday services the Friday before Easter outside of the gun shop um, in our neighborhood. And um, K 
connected the violence that Jesus endured with the suffering of our streets. And it was a really powerful service um, where one of the mothers came up to me afterwards and said, I get it. I get it. I said, what? She said, God understands my pain mm. because God knows what it feels like to lose your son, to have your son taken from you. And um, I mean, the, the, that's some of the best theology I think I've ever heard, you know, right. and, and that that's part of what we see. So one of the things we've done is have the stations of the cross, which is, you know, some traditions of Christianity have these different stations where we remember the, the, the execution of Jesus. But we've done those on the corners where people have been killed. And we've told those stories together, you know, um, because th this is very relevant to the world that we live in. This, this idea that, that life is more powerful than death, that Jesus is the prince of peace. It's that blessed are the peacemakers for you are the children of God. And so what does that mean, you know, for us right now in a country that leads the world? in violence, uh, in homicides, and in and, and military spending in war. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> 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 well, say, you know, um, you know, I was listening to you, I was like, man, um, it's just great, uh, not only just, just a great message, uh, listening to what you had to offer, uh, not only to, you know, to your little pocket, but to the world of uh, lifting up uh, that, that violence is really our huge issue. And that if we can, you know, and, and I think you're right. I, I think the reality is like, we're not going to be able to completely radic, you know, like it's not ever really going to go completely away, but if we can do away with some of these, you know, bigger issues, you know, if we can, you know, we can limit the guns and, and, you know, you know, why do I, that's a question I've always asked. Why does, why my, my uh, grandfather taught me when I was hunting uh, that if you need more than one bullet to shoot the animal, you don't need to be hunting. And, and and so when I hear the argument that they need it for hunting, I'm like, then they're not a good hunter because they really only need one bullet. Um, and, and I just have a hard time with that. And I, and you know, someone who grows up in, you know, in Eastern Oklahoma, you know, it's part of our culture is to have, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't have a gun, you're not a person. Um, and I don't own one and never plan to own one. Uh, it's just too much responsibility that I don't think I could bear. Um, and I think that, you know, what you're doing is just so vital, uh, for the, the kingdom to be made real, uh, for people here and, and to see that. And, um, you know, as you, as you do that, like, you know, what's kind of been, and you've shared with us several things that have given you life, all the stories. And, and uh, I believe in the power of the story. Um, like you do, I mean, you really do utilize the power of the story. Um, what's another story that kind of gives you life that has given you life over the last, you know, several months or something, uh, that you feel like, wow, that's just powerful. Oh gosh. Wow. There, I mean, there's, there's so many, you know, I, I think with, uh, um, each of these, it's, it's so important to remember that, you know, the, these are not just issues, but they're, they're, they're names and faces. And, um, um, I mean, part of why I got involved in, in the work on the death penalty was because I saw the people that were directly affected by that. Um, and both of you, the states that you're, you're, you know, recording this from Oklahoma and Montana are still battlegrounds um, on this, you know, and this is a, um, our places where um, we, we, you still have the death penalty and, um, and, and, uh, and Christians are still wrestling with this, you know, in fact, some, some places the, the Christians are, are actually the, the largest champions of death uh, uh, on the, on the issue of capital punishment. Um, and yet it's stories like, uh, I'll tell you an Oklahoma story since you asked, uh, there's uh, Bud Welch there in Oklahoma. His daughter was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. And um, initially, I mean, obviously, like, like any of us, he, he was just wrecked, you know. And he, he said, I, I would have killed Timothy McVeigh with my own hands if I could. And he said, but then, um, you know, he, he took some space and he began to think about his daughter. And she was such a champion. For, for life and for mercy and justice. And uh, he said she, she would never want the death penalty. And he kind of went on his own little soul quest. But then what happened was he, um, he saw Timothy McVeigh's dad on the news in an interview. And he said, here's Timothy, Mr. McVeigh. He's just got tears rolling down his face as he talks about his son. And he's like, I felt like I was looking in the mirror. Bud Welch said, you know, he said, those are the tears of a, of a dad losing their child. And, and, and of course, then he began to realize, you know, as he's talking about his daughter for all the beautiful things that she can be remembered for, 
um, the McVeigh family is forever um, scarred by what Timothy McVeigh did. And so he said, I, I felt like I needed to get to know him. So Bud Welch and um, Mr. McVeigh got to know each other. And he said, when they first met, they just fell in each other's arms and were weeping. Mm. And he said, and Bud says, I never felt closer to God than in that moment. And they found that their healing was wrapped up together, you know, um, and um, through this long journey, you know, Bud, uh, Bud uh, became one of the most outspoken opponents uh, of the death penalty, just saying this, this isn't going to heal the wounds of what was done. It, it just extends the trauma. It creates new victims like the family of, of Timothy McVeigh and, and it, it, it exacerbates all those wounds. And, and um, of course, Timothy McVeigh was, was executed, but I think it's voices like Bud Welch that to me exemplify the heart of the Christian faith and the possibilities of, of uh, you know, being a real advocate for life. And, and those stories, I think, have the power to change hearts um, mm -hmm. and policies um, in, in, in states that still kind of hold on to the death penalty. Um, um, rather, you know, when I look at the, the scripture, I mean, this is the bearded theologians, which I've, I've got kind of the beard. Go for it, <laughs> They're doing right? good. But, yeah. you know, as, as you look at the theolo theology around the word justice, uh, the word justice and righteousness in scripture are wrapped up together. You know, they're, they're kind of this united concept. And, um, and one of my theologian friends uh, said that the best translation for the biblical concept of justice is restorative justice. And it is about righteousness. It's about making right what was made wrong. It's about healing the wounds of what was done. Um, and certainly the death penalty uh, is, is a very different form. In fact, our whole criminal justice system is built around uh, the idea of punitive justice, you know, which is kind of like, it's asking, what did they do wrong? And what punishment do they deserve for what they did? And restorative ju justice asks a whole different set of, of questions. It comes from a totally different you know, viewpoint. And it says, what harm was done? And what is going to heal the, the wounds of that harm? Um, and that, that's where I think we can find much better ways forward than the kind of punitive system that we have. And um, why Jesus says things like, you've heard it said. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you this, you know, there's an even better way. And that, that eye for an eye paradigm, I mean, it's one of the most well-known verses in the world. The idea of lex talionis, since we're talking theology, you know, is where we get the word retaliation from. The idea that you could do reciprocal harm for the harm done for you and that we call that justice. I mean, this was an ancient kind of paradigm for thinking about justice so if someone poked your eye out you could poke their eye out you had a legal right to do that and that's why jesus comes he says you've heard it said you know you could eye for an eye but i want to show you an even better way and he i think as the fulfillment of that is going to suggest that we may have the right to return harm but that doesn't mean it's right it doesn't mean it's the best that we can do so i mean you know literally if 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 someone poked my eye out, I don't think many of us would think that it's right for me to poke their eye out. You know, um, if we don't rape people who rape to show that rape is wrong, but somehow in the most extreme case of capital, you know, of murder, we still hold out this idea that you can kill to show that killing is wrong. Um, and, 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 and I think Jesus's way is, is a very different way from that. You know, he teaches us a way to interact with evil without mirroring it, without becoming it. And, uh, um, and, 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 you know, I think the, the death penalty is one kind of extreme way that we think about it, but uh, right. militarism, you know, if you, if you blow up our people on nine 11, we're going to declare war and blow up your country, you know, and we kind of have this eye for an eye thing. We've done it and over and over and over again. And, uh, and, you know, when Jesus says you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. Like we keep learning this lesson uh, over and over. That when and, and, that, and that was the lesson as you were talking about, like as you were talking about that, that just popped in my mind. I was thinking, you know, the scene in the garden when Jesus gets arrested and Peter draws the sword and, and cuts the guy's mm -hmm. ear off. You know, it's like, no, like, you know, Jesus is like, no, that's not, you know, that's not who we are. And it's amazing to me how often we forget about that verse. We forget about that scene, but you're real cool with that one scene of an eye for an eye. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Is I, you know, that just, I mean, I've always kind of thought that and, and, um, you know, and that's always kind of been my re rebuttal to people who are, you know, all for violence in regards to, you know, um, that sort of thing. And like, you know, you know, Jesus never really, he modeled uh, a nonviolent way. Um, and, and it wasn't about retaliation. And I think, you know, what you've lifted up here, I mean, that's just kind of key in, in thinking about that and how we can have dialogue with our communities of that. And I think that that's where the power of the story comes into play. Um, and that that's just so, um, when people can know, instead of knowing a statistic, but if they can know a person, I think that that makes a huge difference. And I think the, the, the reality is, is we have a lot of people that could share stories or, um, and, and just don't, or they get so hung up, people get so hung up on the statistics and, um, and, and even then we're, you know, that's just a whole other muddy mess of things. And so, you know, uh, Shane, I, I thank you for what you've lifted up today. I think it's been really cool. Uh, just the conversation you've had has definitely spurred yeah. a few thoughts in my mind as we, uh, we're in, as we're recording this, we're entering in the Holy week and, you know, thinking about, you know, those, that Monday, Thursday, uh, good Friday scene and, you know, what that could mean and what that can look like, I think is powerful. Yeah. And I think also how we miss the whole, the, the point of it, if we're not careful, you know, is that this is not just about, right. um, this kind of, uh, theological exchange where Jesus dies and now we all we got to do is accept Jesus and then we're done like it actually should change everything of how we live you know as we honor what Jesus d did and and allow it to re uh, challenge the ways that we think about violence I mean what does it mean to to worship one who was a victim of violence and forgave as he was dying you know and and all of that so like one of the things that broke my heart um, is that the state of Tennessee, where I'm from, actually brought the electric chair back mm -hmm. during Holy Week as a legitimate form of execution. And I thought, man, we have missed the whole point. You know, like um, I said, the only thing that could be more offensive to Jesus would be bringing crucifixion back during Holy Week. You know, mm. like literally we brought the electric chair back. And now as many of us are remembering Lent um, leading up to Easter, the state of Tennessee is preparing to execute a record number of people before their lethal injection medications expire. Um, and they're doing that during Easter. So I think we got to be careful or else when we separate our theology from the world we live in, we, we end up doing like just doing really strange things, you know, evil things. I mean, Hitler, I had the Bible in his hand and he said, just as Jesus cleansed the Jew, Jews from the temple, I'm cleansing the world of them. I mean, the KKK has an entire part of their website dedicated to their theology. Um, and they call themselves a Christian organization, you know I mean? So th these things still go very deep. And I think as we hear about, um, some of the language that that is prevalent um you know even in in places where christians are very concentrated we often have some of the highest um numbers of uh hate groups and things mm -hmm. like that so we, we if our theology doesn't really translate into real uh implications in our lives and policies then all we've got is a bunch of words on paper. We don't have the word become flesh, right? Right. And, and that's the thing. It, it's so absurd that we live in a culture and in a place that says we're going to fight violence with more violence, right? We, we believe in this love and grace of Christ and, and that, you know, we're redeemed by it. But when we come to reconcile with people, we're going to fight that with violence rather than, yeah. than love and grace. And that is it's so absurd. Um, yeah. And, and you, like you said, as we, as we lead into Lent or go into Lent and into Holy Week and, and Easter and we come out of all, all of that, it's not, not good enough for us just to sit in the pews. It's not good enough just to say, yeah, I like Jesus, right? This is pretty cool. I'm, I'm saved, whatever. Following Christ, you know, the cost of discipleship is huge in and it's not good enough for us just to sit on our butts, right? Yeah. It, it, there's a call to action from Christ of now go, <laughs> go and do this, go and, and be um, my hands and feet in the world, go and bring my love and grace to, to people. And we do that through, through grace, through reconciliation of taking and embracing folks who have been hurt, whom we've hurt or whom have hurt us yeah. and telling those stories and just saying, look, here we are you know, and, and, and this is what this looks like in my gosh, we, we do such a poor job of that. Um, yeah, yeah. We really you know, do. That, that's part of why 
I like Peter, you know, Matt mentioned Peter and I, I, part of why I like it is because it's a very human instinct. I mean, you think about it, they're like, Peter has been walking with Jesus. He heard the sermon on the Mount live real time. Like when, when the armed soldiers come to get Jesus, he's, he still pulls this weapon and cuts one of the guy's ears off, you know, and, um, and but then it, it could not be clear what Jesus does in response, you know, he, he scolds Peter. No, put your sword back. You still don't get it. You know, like you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. And then he heals the ear, puts the ear back on, you know, heals yeah. the man who was wounded. Um, this beautiful triumph of love over violence. And the early Christians, um, Tertullian and others, they said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he mm. disarmed every one of us. Mm. Because if ever there was a case for standing your ground, right? For uh, using violence to try to protect the innocent. Like Peter had the best case in the world. And so that's when they really, I think, began to resonate with this was kind of the final triumph over redemptive violence um, uh, with, with this incident with Peter. Um, but it's still a knee-jerk reaction in all of mm -hmm. us. You know, it's, it's this sense that, and, and the early Christians said, no, greater love is no one than this, Jesus said, right? Like, right than to lay down your life. We can lay down our life, but the minute we try to take a life to save a life, we end up kind of diverging from the way of Jesus, the, the mm -hmm. love that dies. And, um, but that's why I like Peter, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's a human being like us. And uh, I always uh, like to say, you know, if, if Peter started to think a little too highly of himself, you know, and he's, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, out, out there going, I'm the rock of the church, you know, yeah. and uh, I think everybody would be like, you remember when you cut that dude's ear off? Right. I also like to say Peter sank like a rock as well, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah my, my friend uh, Nadia Boltzweber, I've heard her say like, uh, we got the translation wrong. It's not Peter, you're the rock. It's Peter, you're dumb as a rock, but right. I'm, still, I'm still building my church on you, you know? Right. Right. And that, that, you know, I think, I think we can see in that, this invitation that we're all a work in progress, you know, mm -hmm. so for, for folks that are still clinging to their guns, like Jesus clung to his sword, I think it's this invitation to, to like trust, you know, mm -hmm. to trust that, that, um, I mean, I mean, we may even die. I mean, this story didn't right. end well for Peter, you know, right. but he finally right. began to get that, that you don't return violence with violence, like, like love, love dies, but it doesn't kill. Um, and, and that that radical love. I mean, the, the martyrs used to say, you know, as we die, our witness can be as much uh, uh, in our death as it was in our life. Like we we die with love on our lips, as Jesus did, and we triumph over evil with violence. And boy, that's a that's a radical call. You know, I mean, no one wants to die, and we certainly don't want more innocent people to die. Um, but in the end, like violence is the problem, not the solution, you know, and, mm -hmm. and we, we can't get rid of violence by using violence. Like we kind of just add more fire, uh, more fuel to the fire. Right. Well, Shane, I know we could do this all day. We want to be good <laughs> stewards of your time uh, and your efforts and all the things that you're doing. Uh, quickly, you want to tell us where our listeners can find you on social media and, and those types of things and promote anything else you want to promote? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, my social media is just my name. So it's Shane Claiborne. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. I tried my best to... Uh, you know, stay, keep things up to date on there. Um, there's a whole network, a beautiful movement of, um, of Christians who are holding together Jesus and justice uh, that I help lead called Red Letter Christians. And um, you can find a, a lot of information on our website, redletterchristians.org. Um, and, um, you know, referring to the old Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red. We're kind of like, we want to read those words of Jesus and live like he meant the stuff he said. And that's what we're really committed to. Um, a few things on the horizon. I don't know exactly when the show will air, but even if it's it's after this, you can uh, track. A, we're, we're doing a really beautiful event March 21st uh, here in Philadelphia in a, in a week here um, where we're going to melt down uh, one of these assault rifles in the plows and uh, that'll be live streamed too. And, and so even if it's afterwards, you can go back and, and uh, see that. Um, it's very powerful and we'll have a lot yeah. of victims of 
uh, gun violence and mass shootings and other faith leaders that are going to be speaking there. Um, and then uh, we, we, we felt like part of what we need right now is a revival, you know, in the, in, in, here in our country, um, especially within evangelicalism of coming back to Jesus again. So um, we're having our first red letter revival in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, in April. So folks are very, it's a long way from Oklahoma and Montana, but other <laughs> listeners out there, you're very welcome. And we think this may be the, the first of many, but all that stuff's on our website. Most of all, I think we, we want to live in ways that um, fascinate the world with God's love. And, and as mother Teresa said, we want to leave off the fragrance of Jesus mm. uh, as we live uh, our lives. So that's what we're after. And I'm grateful for you guys and for the conversation today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll show a couple of things executing grace here uh, for the people watching it. Um, but also the common book or prayer, man, dude, this is, I, I give these to all my high school and college awesome. graduates that I've worked with because, you know, this is, this is clunky to carry on. I'll carry it, but college kids that carry that, right? Um, yeah, and there's a phone app too. I yeah, think we're working on the Android version, but there's a, right. yeah, we had a bunch of volunteer, like folks that just created an app. So I, that's what right. I travel with. They got all the songs I can listen to and everything. Yeah. But that, that came out of our own, um, you know, desire to pray authentically together and from all different traditions, some kind of yeah. charismatic and others that were Mennonite and Quaker and, you know, mm -hmm. folks that were um, Catholic. Uh, so we, we kind of pull, uh, harmonized all those in, yes. in the, in the book of prayer. So yeah, cool. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. Um, we want to thank you for coming on again. And uh, we want to thank our listeners. We couldn't do this uh, without you. We, we, we would still do it because we enjoy it, but <laughs> we love that you, you join with us each week and um, check out Shane's stuff, check out his work. If you can go be a part of any of this, please go, whether it's in person or digitally, however. Um, again, we want to thank you. We want to invite you to check out beardedtheologians.com. We have some awesome blogs. Um, check out our past episodes and uh, you can find all of that there uh, as well as iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcast. Um, also check out beardedtheologians.com and click the buy our stuff thing that helps us continue to do this podcast for free. Uh, and you get a cool shirt or a mug or whatever you decide to buy out of it. Um, Mother's Day. Razor. Yeah, a razor, right? Yeah. <laughs> we tried to get in the beard, beard bomb business and it just didn't work. It, it, it didn't work very well. Um, but um, yeah, you know, Easter's, Easter's coming up you know, coffee mugs go a long way for, for dads and uh, moms and stuff. So check that out. We want to, again, thank you so much uh, for, for tuning in and listening and supporting us in all the ways that you do. Uh, for the Bearded Theologians, I'm Zach Bechtold. I'm Matt Franks. Thanks for checking us out. Thank you for listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening and we hope that you share our content online uh, through Facebook and social media. And we hope that you check out our uh, Beardcast store at beardedtheologians.com and pick up some great Bearded Theologians gear. We hope you have a good day.